Let's pray for him. God, our Father, thank you. Thank you for our fellowship in you. Thank you for your presence with us by your spirit. Thank you for your word and its truth to illuminate us. And grant us uh, tonight that once again, as we try to um, be faithful in applying your truth, help us spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And inspire George as he helps us and uh, help us to help each other for the glory of your name. Amen. George. Oh, thanks, Rob. Thanks for your prayer. Um, one of my favourite internet memes is the Nailed It meme. Has anybody come across the Nailed It meme? It's been going for years and years. Uh, Pinterest is a social media site. Who's on Pinterest? Yeah, it's uh, where people share their creative ideas like recipes or crafts or home decor. And there are amazing and beautiful things on it. And people try to copy them. Uh, And so the meme goes, I saw this on Pinterest, I tried it at home, and I've nailed it. (laughs) Well, James and Rob have set a high bar. First, we had a biblical pattern for servant leadership that's neither overbearing or neglectful, uh, or underbearing, is that a new word? The definition of which is not simply assumed, but rather understood from the scripture. And then we had a theologically informed perspective on pastoral leadership. In fact, three perspectives on pastoral leadership, servant leadership, uh, perspectives that inform, direct, constrain leadership practice. And now it falls to me to reflect on how we are doing with all of that. Have we nailed it? Well, I'm going to attempt an assessment. However, I need to say up front that this is mostly based on my own experience or my own interpretation of conservative evangelical practice, which will probably inevitably be skewed and flawed. And in the most part, I'm simply aiming to ask some searching questions rather than give definite answers, which is a dodge, isn't it? My title, Puritanical Pragmatist Patriarchy, is intentionally provocative, It isn't a quote from a liberal critic. This is my own phrase. It could be, though, couldn't it? Those three words are used negatively with reference to conservative evangelicals. And I concede that it is an insulting caricature of a constituency that is more variegated than monochrome. But I want to explore three themes under these headings. Now, you can judge how contrived that you think this is, but I'm going to attempt to stay with Rob's perspectival proposal because I'm a big fan of John Frame too. Well, let me begin by describing a little more of the caricature from these three perspectives. Puritanical, well, that falls under the normative perspective. I'm going to go back to John Frame's ethical titles. That was the control one. Normative perspective. We think we know what is right, and that's just that. Everyone else is wrong. Pragmatist, that falls under the situational perspective. We think we know how to get things done, and so that's what we do. Everyone else is wasting their time. And patriarchy falls under the existential perspective. We think only certain men can be entrusted with spiritual leadership. Everyone else doesn't qualify. I'm not saying that's how all conservative evangelicals are, or even how any of us are but it's how we can be perceived. 
Well, how might we describe ourselves under those three headings then? Again, this is still a caricature. But, but how about this being sound, being strategic, and being secure? <laughs> uh, those sound familiar? They, they ring loud bells in my head. Now, you might not want to accept either of those set of descriptors, but I think they provide a useful framework to answer the have-we-nailed-it question. And I realise now that I need to refine that question. So James asked, what does it mean not to lord it over people as the Gentiles do? Rob asked, who can tell you to do the thing you don't want to do? And the irony is not lost on us. For many of us, that's now him. In view of all of that, I want to ask, what needs to change in church leadership practice in our constituency? I want to ask what's gone wrong, and more specifically, how have we fallen short of what Rob and James have described for us? But then a pertinent question arises from James's question, which is, how does the way we do church leadership differ from the current practices of secular leadership? Or how should it? Well, now I've refined the question and made it into loads of other questions. Um, Let's consider each perspective. So first, the puritanical perspective. That's the normative perspective. I am a big fan of the Puritans. Any more fans of the Puritans? Are we all of the Puritans? I think that they've given us a wealth of theologically rich writings on Christian ministry and Christian living. But sadly, the word puritanical has come to mean censorious, rigid, and strict. It's often used to describe conservative evangelicals not as a recognition of warm-hearted theology, but as an accusation of cold-hearted judgmentalism. It is shallow and unfair, not least to the Puritans, but I think that there are problems with the normative aspect of leadership amongst conservative evangelicals. I don't think we all consciously assent to a single pattern of leadership. I don't think that we can discern a homogenous cultural norm in the constituency. It's certainly beyond me. Yet there are highly visible leaders that have had significant influence, well, in my experience, at least. Speaking of my experience, um, let me tell you a little of my background, which I hope will put my observations into context. I was born in Seacombe, which is the rough end of Wallasey, near the ferry and the old docks on the River Mersey. My granddad was a bin man who read the Daily Telegraph. I have a vivid memory of reading an article in it about Winchester College when I was about nine or ten. And I read how you could get a full scholarship, so I asked my parents about it. Of course, they said, don't be ridiculous. Well, fair enough, I wouldn't have got it anyway. But if I was bright enough and did get it, I might have been standing here today with another story. I had another, an ordinary education at average state schools and trained as an engineer. But when it came to my theological education, that was different. Many of the people who influenced me, those who discipled me, who encouraged me into full-time ministry, who taught me, who were in my co- cohort at college, who spoke at the conferences I went to, Many of them had come through a Christian pipeline embedded within the upper echelons of the private education sector. And my ministerial formation 
has been under that wing, or part of it has been under that wing. <coughs> I've even been a leader on one of the exclusive summer camps, the third division one for um, pupils of public schools in the north. <laughs> I was the rock climbing instructor. <laughs> Bring out the ape man. Yeah. So I'm not a critical outsider. I'm a conflicted insider. And I'm not the only one. I also think there are lots of brothers and sisters who've come through that golden pipeline and who've become conflicted too, in some cases for tragic reasons. There is so much to value about the missional momentum which is in large part owed to that golden pipeline, and which I and others like me have been drawn into. Most of all, there is an unshakable emphasis on the clear teaching of the Bible as the word of God and visible commitment to the truth it reveals. We echo Paul's charge to uphold sound doctrine in the pastoral epistles, like when he describes the responsibility of an elder in Titus 1.9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And so, to be trustworthy like Titus, we are minded to do everything we can to protect sound doctrine, to preserve it and to proclaim it. We fear it will be polluted or diluted if we entertain even the slightest compromise. Thus, we become fearful of being seen to compromise. And it's not by those outside the constituency, it's by those inside the constituency, the gatekeepers, that we feel are being labelled. This is purely anecdotal, and I cannot possibly reveal either my source or the source of this quote. Fellowship of word and spirit? What is that? Are they sound? Are you sound? The question is, <laughs> what do we mean by sound? And the answer to that question, I do not believe, is straightforward. You can see that a connection to the Golden Pipeline carries weight for good reason. But we need to beware of saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Paulus, or even I'm of Titus. And to me, the, the question has often had a separatist connotation, and by that, I mean that the question behind the question is, have you distanced yourself enough from possible sources of unsoundness? Are you tainted by things that sound like they might be liberal? Are you guilty of liberalism by association with people who appear too tolerant? And some of the things that give the appearance of soundness and unsoundness have got nothing to do with doctrine. There's nothing wrong with having Holy Communion at your main service every week. There's nothing wrong with liturgy. There's nothing wrong with a surplus and a cassock. There's nothing wrong with leading a small church on a council estate. There's nothing wrong with a rural benefice. Now, how many of us do those things? I think there's probably quite a few do some of those things. How many keynote speakers at big conferences are doing those things? 
has a laudable concern for not polluting the church and not diluting the gospel, and I do not want to diminish that, especially in this moment. But, but I think that when a concern about taint or guilt by association is a leadership norm, there can be undesirable <laughs> outcomes. There is a little switch that happens which causes a big problem. It's when commitment to biblical truth or gospel advance advance is <laughs> is equated with personal loyalty. I'll say that again. It's when commitment to biblical truth or gospel advance is equated with personal loyalty. It's when any challenge to the church leader or evangelical ringleader is cast in terms of doctrinal error or missional apathy. It's when only those who agree on every detail, some of which are matters of preference, are allowed into positions of responsibility. It's when someone accrues power and influence personally through becoming synonymous with a doctrinal position or a missional mandate. And that doesn't just happen in the conservative evangelical city in the, the Church of England or Church in England. I know that. But that's what we're talking about, and it has happened, and it isn't right. Of course, it's abuse of power. But I wonder if it requires a certain kind of gr- corporate group think. The book I was waving around before earlier today, uh, I Told Me So, by Greg A. 10 Elshoff. It's not about leadership, it's about self-deception. It's an unsettling read because it challenges all the things we believe about what we believe as Christians. And Elshoff makes the observation that to deceive ourselves effectively, we need help. And thus offers a brilliant description of corporate groupthink. And it made me shudder, so I'm going to quote the whole paragraph. Studies show that high-powered leaders who show a preference for ingratiating subordinates are likely to generate, often unwittingly, contexts in which there is an illusion of unanimity. These leaders are rarely explicit in their discouragement of critique and dissent. They often present themselves as though they're seeking the voice and counsel of the group. Nevertheless, Employees of such leaders understand that their success in the workplace depends not so much on how well they work together with other members of the group, but on the degree to which they fall in line with the leader. As a result, they are reluctant to voice critical feedback or dissenting opinions in meetings. Since others are similarly reluctant, there is the appearance of group unanimity in the direction of the leader's proposed course. While there are many with dissenting opinions, it looks to each as though everyone else is on board with the leader's ideas. In my experience in conservative evangelical circles, concern for a clear, strong, sound doctrinal mandate in leadership has too often slid into this kind of corporate groupthink. And this is not servant leadership. I think it's a lethal paradox of both overbearing and underbearing pattern of leadership. And tragic wake-up calls have been stacking up and now we're trying to react well. 
Since its inception, I've attended every one of the Renew Regional Leaders Gatherings. I think that Renew has evolved very positively, especially lately, and I'm very encouraged about it. But I'm going to wind back a few years. This is something I wrote on the train on the way home from one of the meetings uh, two years ago. The RLG, the Renew Leaders Gathering, strikes me as a rarefied gathering distinguished by impeccable social graces and implacable social elitism. A forum that can do little other than perpetuate power to privilege. Now I realise and admit that my own impression is based on my own prejudices and social attitudes and chips on my shoulder. But my natural tendency is to assume that my perspective is is inferior and it seems this is a bunch of people whose natural tendencies assume that theirs is superior. I cannot speak for my own shortcomings, but I think there's something amiss here. I do not for one minute believe there's malicious intent, quite the opposite, in fact. I don't think that they're aware of an array of subtle social cues following a set of unwritten rules when they say they are all committed to a positive agenda. I've moved on from that, but that's how I felt then. Um, That brings us to pragmatism. The pragmatist's perspective, this is a more situational perspective. It's just a guess, but I think we'd find more conservative evangelicals willing to own the term pragmatist than Puritan. Do you think? Maybe? Am I right with that? Maybe not. Tell me off later. We need to deal with our obsession with pragmatism. Doing what works to get the desired results. That we can employ a particular mechanism and orchestrate an outcome we've decided based on our assessment of what is best. That by our own efforts we can achieve acknowledged success. Um, Has anybody read that article about visionary dreaming by Matt Patterson in Evangelicals Now? Anybody come across that? It's, It's really very interesting. He shows how worldly pragmatism has two ugly fruit in church ministry. It leads to burnout and bullying. We either beat up ourselves to get the results or because we don't get them, or we beat up other people to get the results or because they don't get them for us, or both. And when we've been enslaved by secular success criteria, we're crushed by pressures from outside and from inside. We face external threats from secularisation itself, putting church out of sight, from social media, from the effects of the pandemic, and especially the effect of all these things on younger people and children. Internally, churches are threatened by financial shortfalls, overwhelmed by safeguarding concerns, and undermined by denominational heterodoxy. Jesus has appointed us to bear fruit, And we're committed to that, aren't we? But fruit that will last comes from abiding in the vine in love and obedience, John 15. And we are reminded that he is the vine and we are the branches. Following his great commission, our aim is making disciples who are growing in him and our means to achieve that aim is abiding in him. When we get all narrowly focused on getting results, it sort of falls out of our minds. And in fact, we find that humility and compassion, 
key facets of Jesus' model of servant leadership are, are diminished because we're so focused. There's some brilliant examples in Matt Patterson's article about that. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas went to the city of Derby. Is that how you pronounce it, or is it Derby? Some people from Derby here might want to claim it. Um, they went to Derby, and many people turned to Christ. Bang! After all the trouble and hassle in Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, they finally got the formula right. In fact, Derby is the only place where people accepted the gospel immediately and believed in great numbers. Well, let's have a report about that so we can celebrate the success and learn how to repeat whatever they did and multiply this success model. Let's follow the apostles as they target more great numbers and plant more churches in strategic city locations. That's probably what we'd do, isn't it? But in the Acts of the Apostles, we don't get any of that. Derby only gets briefly mentioned in Acts 14, almost in passing. After some serious meetings in Antioch and Jerusalem, God then called them to Philippi. And in contrast to this one-line report about Derby, Luke's account of the conversions of just a few new believers is rich with detail. It tells of Lydia, a worshipper of God, whose heart the Lord opened to receive Paul's message. He tells of how Paul and Barnabas were jailed for healing a slave girl and how the Gentile jailer was converted through an amazing turn of events. He reveals the Lord powerfully at work, breaking down every barrier to the gospel. And when he writes to the still tiny church in Philippi, Paul rejoices not because of their great number, but because of their partnership in the gospel. And strikingly, his prayer for them is not for spiritual, not for numerical growth, but for spiritual growth, verse 9 of chapter 1. And that whether people oppose him or not, Christ is preached, chapter 1, verse 18. We're committed to disciple-making, but disciple-making is not a program that we can design and administrate. It's an organic process that we tend and nurture. It's not a factory, it's a farm. When I listen to my brothers in rural ministry, it's amazing how they're, they're so in touch with times and seasons. Rural life requires patience and resilience. It is slow, organic, and rooted in close community. And there's a quiet acceptance of dependence on God for the harvest. So I think success is not a helpful word. It focuses us on optics, metrics, and ungodly comparison. It focuses on methods, strategies, resources, and results. And these things are useful tools. They're important in that way. But when we are aiming at success, they make our ministry human-centered. I believe that glory is a better word. It focuses on God and his glory. It focuses on what God has done, is doing, and will do. And when we are aiming at glory, we want to hear the story and see how God is at work and rejoice. So rather than optics and metrics, let's focus on story and glory. And let's take our cue from the stories in the Bible about the glory of God. Stories of changed lives only glorify God if there are stories of God at work. And we can tell if God is at work because these stories resonate with or reflect the great story of salvation. 
stories can influence us, move us, impress us, even change our minds. We know that, don't we? we? We know how powerful stories are. But unless they are telling God's story, they're simply entertaining us, possibly misleading us, or even telling lies. Well, now we're moving into the existential perspective, patriarchy. As Rob observed, when we reflect on the story of Scripture, we can see that family headship remains the primary expression of God-ordained leadership from the patriarchal period through to the church age. It's not an authoritarian dictatorship. It's not a corporate management structure. It, is, it looks like family oversight headship characterized by sacrificial service and tells the story of salvation revealed in the Bible. But since the late 20th century, the word patriarchy has been used differently. It's been used to describe a social system in which positions of dominance and privilege are primarily held by men and in which women are held back, devalued, exploited or oppressed. It has been the cause of feminists to work for liberation from patriarchy and to expose where social systems are guilty of it, whether consciously or unconsciously, and bring change. And unsurprisingly, conservative evangelicals are accused of patriarchy. Because we have a distinctive view on the roles of men and women that appears to favour men. Now we could own the term in the right way. Our model of leadership is, as Rob showed, sacrificial family headship, and its heritage goes back to the patriarchs. But are we patriarchal in the wrong way? Do we, unconsciously or not, devalue women and privilege men? Now, for me, there is a strong case for not being egalitarian. Um, you may be egalitarian, or may have a, a, a distinctive view. I think there's a really strong case for not being egalitarian, because I don't think we want equality despite sex difference. I don't think we are simply people who happen to be either male or female. We're not interchangeable. That's how God made us. He made us male and female in his image to reflect his glory as men and women. So the roles we take in our church families, just like in our natural families, they're not gender neutral. Having men and women in church leadership is not about giving equal access to both to uphold justice, which is what many people would think. It's because we need both, because they are different and complementary. Like Father, Son and Holy Spirit are equal, share the same essence and yet are individuated. Thus we need to stop defining women's ministry by a list of what only men can do, and start recognising that we need women in ministry as much as men. We need to start recognising that our need of women's ministry and valuing women rather than obsessing about who does what. Taking one line out of 1 Timothy 2 about women being quiet is no different than taking one line out of Romans 16 about Junior being an apostle. But now I'm going to say something which might be controversial. Um... I was hoping I haven't said something too controversial yet, probably. Um, a view of ministry that is entirely focused on preaching 
and then says only men can preach is systematically sexist. The same could be said when it is entirely focused on sacraments and then saying only men can preside. I think this is bad patriarchy in that it invites a systemic devaluing of women. It's like having a view of parenting that is entirely focused on giving birth. The thing is that it's not only sexist, it's missing out a vital relational need. We need a bigger vision of word ministry and Christian leadership that recognises the equal need for men and women. It's not about whether male, whether male headship, but what kind. I think all male leadership teams are as non-complementarian as all female leadership teams. I think that both will have problems. Whilst on a different level, an entirely different level, there is a sort of irony in an all-male church family leadership condemning same-sex marriage. When it comes down to it, though, bad patriarchy is as much about succession as sexism. It's about perpetuating and protecting an unquestioned legacy, being secure. Not just confined to men, but certain men who are sound, which connects to the normative perspective. And we can easily observe undesirable outcomes. There are very few conservative evangelical women in positions of influence, very few conservative evangelical women in full-time paid ministry, and it's very difficult for conservative evangelical women to get funding for theological training. Conservative evangelical women in leadership are in a tiny minority for fear of not being sound or, or lack of opportunity or simple obstruction. How big or wealthy does a church have to be before they finally consider a full-time female ministry staff member? I think that a contributory factor to the situational problems we have now, the, the bullying, the sexual abuse, the burnout, the relational vacuum, is male dominated leadership with a kind of bad patriarchy. It's notable that in verse Timothy 2, verse 8, where Paul gives instructions to men, the dangers he warns against are unholiness, anger, and disputing. We've too long viewed women's ministry as a list of things women can't do, rather than a vital thing we can't do without. Well, what needs to change? Well, I think we're in a period now where most of us are very keen to embrace positive changes in response to negative outcomes. I think we need to work against um, imbalanced, pressured groupthink. I think it's already happening. But what will promote, help promote positive change in each perspective on leadership? Well, from the normative perspective... We just need to be more theologically consistent, don't we? Which includes being ecclesiologically consistent and deferentially collaborative and stop worrying about being sound. In inverted commas, don't stop worrying about sound doctrine. For as long as I've been involved in fellowship of word and spirit, it seems to me correct me if I'm wrong, that these have been our core values. So I don't need to say any more. You're all with it already. 
Rob exported this ethos to a thing called the Chester Association with me cheering him on. And now Rob's a bishop. Hooray! From the situational perspective, let's be much more concerned about spiritual growth and God's glory than secular success criteria and being strategic. Let's be dependent on God's grace and seek his glory. From the existential perspective, I think the main thing we need to work on is being truly complementarian. In fact, I think a campaign to be truly complementarian is of the greatest benefit to all perspectives on Christian leadership at this time. That's why the seminar tomorrow morning, which will be led by Claire, is entirely devoted to this topic. With domineering, overpowering, bullying and abuse issues in leadership, I think that promoting female influence is a really positive way to redress the balance. I'm not saying that women can't be bullies too. No, they really can be. But that balance of complementarianism is a blessing from God. Godly femininity is something to be celebrated and embraced and not reduced, either by devaluing women or by making gender an irrelevance or a choice rather than a gift. A church needs men and women to exercise complementary servant leadership and to receive both male and female leadership, not as the same kind of leadership, but as equal but different. Headship and submission, whilst theologically aligned to the nature of the Holy Trinity and the work of salvation, wonderfully so, are quite unhelpful terms in our cultural context. This is my opinion. I don't think in our cultural context they quite capture the totality of the giving nature of the Father, nor the complete surrender of Christ for the church, and that both are servant roles. That women, men and women have different roles is, is true, but their purpose is the same. It's to reflect God. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul stresses that men and women have different dangers to avoid and different virtues to work on. I think as a whole, New Testament teaching on leadership ministry is not intended as a list of what women can't do. I think it tells the story that reflects the principles of how men and women are to serve the Lord together in church ministry. I I believe complementarianism is glorious. It's a wonderful gift. Let's work on it, celebrate it, and share its blessings. I don't want to speak for Rob, but I'm pretty sure he sees that as a kind of mandate for the Sea of Epsilon. In Christian leadership, we need a bigger view of word ministry that's not just about preaching. When Paul writes to the Philippians, his objective is that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, in Philippians 1.9. His teaching is relational. It's not just propositional. It's shared in love, and the fruit is godly love. Let's pray. Loving Father, we just want to humbly thank you that you have revealed such beauty in who you are as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that you've given us such gifts in our Christian lives to enjoy and delight in you, to reflect you. And we do pray for the gift of leadership, of servant leadership, 
and pray that you would help us to discern and use that rightly in a way that glorifies you, in a way that tells the story of your salvation work through your Son. And we ask this in his name. Amen.